Present Tense Podcast by Green Bucket Press. Welcome to the Present Tense Podcast. Our second episode, Not Too Bad, is the first in a two-part story of J. Everett Batterbury. Sometimes we meet a person and cannot possibly envision how our lives will be changed because of them. When I met Everett on 12th Street, I was a young mother just divorced, struggling in relationship with a charismatic but irresponsible artist named Jesse. In the early 90s, I was expanding the family printing company client base, finishing an MFA in book arts, and parenting my son Edward. Everett was an unforeseen spiritual teacher. I bonded swiftly and fully. Several years after his death, I was invited to the wedding of a Barnard College sister, Lynn Doherty. The wedding was in charming Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and I drove up from Birmingham. The event was a tremendous emotional trigger. For years I'd been mired in trauma with my now ex-husband. Lynn and a childhood friend had each been in my wedding and had become close friends while both living in D.C. They'd chosen stable, supportive men as husbands. I was not invited to be in Lynn's wedding. The other friend was. Despite my best attempts not to care, I was wrecked. My life was a dance in the open wound. So when I arrived in the town and checked into the hotel, I withdrew into the space and privacy of my room. I sat down and wrote Not Too Bad during that weekend, stopping only for the wedding itself and a walk along the river. I took refuge in the story of Everett. As the happy people cheered for love, I pressed into this story and told it. Now, on to part one of episode two, Not Too Bad.
I watched him mowing the lawn across the street where old Miss Dilworth lived. He was thin and bent, wearing droopy pants and a flannel shirt. He pushed the mower slowly, as if holding on to it for support. I cleaned the house a few times for Mrs. Dilworth before Everett moved in, dodging the toothless, ageless dog she called Baby, who barked and nipped at my heels while I vacuumed. Miss Dilworth's bedroom was strewn with loose face powder, as if she slung it into the air. She loved seeing my baby. Once, as she was reaching out to touch him, I saw the pancake makeup caked beneath her thick nails. Her lipstick was lopsided, breaching the boundaries of her lips. She spoke with the high, swinging, sing-song of an old white Alabama that is dying out. Miss Dilworth wore a silver-blonde wig on her balding head. She was small and frail. Everett Batterbury met Miss Dilworth at the Methodist church down the street. He attended the Methodist church because it was in the neighborhood. Everett came to live with Miss Dilworth to help her out. I could see that the old lady needed a hand around the house, he said. He was right, too. One day she stood on the sidewalk, all dressed up, with her dress on backwards. I crossed over to greet her. I've got a doctor's appointment, and my daughter is coming to get me. It was Sunday at five in the afternoon. Or another time, she sat on the porch in a quilted polyester floral patterned bathrobe with bright polyester slacks underneath. She was not wearing her wig. Her head looked much smaller without the great crown of hair. Her daughter arrived. I heard the daughter saying, But Mama, you've got to go to the doctor. She shooed Miss Dilworth back into the house to finish her preparations. After a little while, the two emerged and departed in the car. Later, they came back. The daughter helped her into the house and reemerged, hurrying to the car. The daughter drove away quickly. The old lady needed Everett. Mr. J. Everett Batterbury. He was born in 1917 to a single mother in New York City. She made a living as a seamstress and washwoman. When her son was six, she sent him to be raised by a farm family in New Jersey. She thought that her boy would have a better life with a large farm family. So he left his mother and New York City. When he was old enough, he worked on the farm with the other children. For a while he went to school, but mostly he worked, milking cows. As he became a young man, he left the family to make his own way. He moved on to another farm, where he milked cows and tended the barn. He went from farm to farm, hoping to work for those farmers who would pay 
promptly and fairly. He lived in bunkhouses with the other farmhands. He avoided the World War II draft because he worked on a farm. And so he continued. When he was in his 50s, he was hit by a car. His hip was broken and he couldn't work. When he was 60, he looked at a map and chose Birmingham, Alabama as his destination. With a suitcase in hand, he boarded the bus to Birmingham. When I first saw him, he was living with Miss Dilworth. Everett lived downstairs, and Miss Dilworth lived upstairs. He mowed the grass and tended the house. He cooked, shopped, and made sure the old lady took her medicine. He called her the old lady, and he called the dog Babe. Much later, he told me, in low tones, that when she fell and was taken away in an ambulance, he knew she wasn't coming back. He was right. Soon after, she died at the hospital. And that daughter of hers, she didn't even take me to the hospital to visit. I'm telling you, that's what happens. With Miss Dilworth dead, the daughter owned the house. Everett continued to live there for $225 a month. He kept mowing the grass. One hot, humid Alabama summer night, after Miss Dilworth had been dead for about eight months, I argued with my boyfriend, Jesse, who stormed off my porch and up the street. I stood on the porch, and in the thick, late-night silence, which is not silent at all with the constant rhythm of cicadas sounding and the birds that cry just after midnight, I heard a voice calling, Help me! Help me. It was a frail voice, but I heard it clearly. I was frightened. I thought the voice was coming from the dark house across the street where the old man lived, and I imagined ravaging intruders. It wasn't the first time I considered how vulnerable he was. I rushed outside, calling to Jesse in the darkness surrounded by street lights. Jesse, come back! Someone is crying for help. I think it's the old man. Jesse came back, running. He crossed the street to the house. My heart beat urgently. He crouched down on the porch across the street. From my porch, I watched him lift the old man from behind the porch swing. He supported the old man into the house. The front door shut. The lights came on. After what seemed like a long time, Jesse came back to my house. He was shaking his head, half laughing. His eyes were tender. What happened? I asked. Well, it seems that the old man got himself a six-pack, had a couple of beers, and fell backwards out of the swing. 
When I got there, he said he'd been there since afternoon. He had a flower pot stuck on his head, and he's got a gash on his forehead. He'd peed his pants. So I helped him in, got him cleaned up, and washed the cut. I think he's all right. He's shaking, but he's lying down. Phew, that's tough to start losing your independence, Jesse said. He was just too weak to get himself up. Following the fall, Jesse checked on the old man often. Jesse would buy some beer and chips, and they'd watch ball games on the small black-and-white TV at Everett's place. I'd hear the little dog barking wildly when Jesse arrived. He cleaned and checked Everett's forehead wound, which wasn't healing quickly. Time passed. One Saturday morning, a few months later, there was a knock at the door. My son Edward went to answer it. He came back to the kitchen. It's the old man from across the street, he reported. He wants to see Jesse. Well, ask him in, I said to my son. Everett said that Babe was sick. She's blown up like a sausage, said Everett. I need to take her to the vet. Could you help me? We loaded into the pickup truck. Jesse held the dog, who was huge and ancient. Still, despite her debilitated condition, she nipped and cried so fiercely that Jesse, a big strong man, wore leather work gloves to protect his arms from her ferocious gumming. Everett rode between Jesse and me. We had to haul him up into the truck. Edward rode in the back. Off we went to the closest vet that was open on Saturday. We arrived at the vet's clinic and started to unload. Jesse emerged with a dog and dropped the unfortunate creature on its back. Jesse swore under his breath. Baby screamed. We held our breath. But she emerged unhurt, still bloated. We unloaded Everett. We unloaded the boy. The business of the clinic stopped, and all attention turned to us as we entered. Jesse wore the big leather gloves as if he were holding a poisonous snake, not a small but bloated chihuahua. Everett staggered with his cane. The rubber soles of his boat shoes were stiff with age, as were Everett's legs. With each step, he teetered as if he might go down face first. But he gripped the cane and kept his balance. My son Edward carried his book, as he does. His lithe body was a counterpoint to the old man. The veterinarian welcomed us in at once. In the white-walled room, Baby was laid on the aluminum examination table. The four of us stood around and watched as the veterinarian probed and examined. 
Babe's heart was failing, and as a result, her body was bypassing fluids into her tissue. This explained her being blown up like a sausage. The kind and patient vet drained an enormous amount of fluid from her and prescribed some pills. Babe looked at Everett with old eyes. She looked relieved. The vet talked to Everett. Everett looked at the vet with old eyes. His stiff fingers ran across the dog's head. He cooed to her. He sang a high sing-song. The vet emphasized certain points. I nodded attentively, not sure that Everett was listening. Life is made up of millions of moments, each separate, all strung together in time. Most of these separate moments shoot into the past, are forgotten, are never to be recalled. But these still frames of Everett and his babe hold my memory. We made our way home. Jesse and Edward went with Everett to make a comfortable bed in the kitchen for Babe. They gave her a pill and special dog food. They settled her in. The vet called me to check on Babe and on Everett. She asked me to keep her apprised. She wouldn't charge him. I thanked her. The next morning, Babe was dead. Jessie dug a hole for her in the backyard of Everett's place. Edward helped a little. Everett watched. Jessie sang Amazing Grace. Edward said a prayer. They buried Babe, each throwing a handful of dirt onto her body in the hole. After that, Everett was part of our life. There are events, situations, and creatures of many kinds the demand of us are attention, time, resources, and courage. To refuse our energy would be to damn ourselves to the worst hell imaginable, regret. There are those blessed times in life when there is no thinking, no weighing, no judging. There is the knowing of the gut. Kindness is something else. Kindness is a lesson learned in school. Real life is real living. And sometimes real living demands that all the appointments and problems and discussions can wait. The squabbles and honors become nothing but air. These are times of birth and death and crisis and celebration. At these moments, being alive is nothing more or less than jumping in a truck to do the right thing. That is heaven on earth. That is the payoff. That is worth more than anything else I can imagine.
Jesse told me that there were lots of roaches in Everett's house. That night, I brought him some supper. Jesse was right. I saw roaches. I saw lots of roaches. I saw roaches on the walls. I saw roaches on the drapes. Small roaches crawled on the table next to Everett's chair. They crouched in the box of tissues. They scaled the vertical wall of the box of crackers. Dead roaches floated in the glass with his dentures. Roaches skittered across the floor. Roach carcasses were heaped in dusty corners in piles with unswept dog hair. Roaches crossed the box beams on the ceiling. A rusty can of bug killer sat beside his chair. Everett flicked one or two roaches from his arm. He ate happily. The night was hot. The humid room was thick with the smell of dog pee in the old oriental rug. Dry old piles of dog shit were littered here and there. Everett, my God, there's so many roaches in here. Well, he said, it's not as bad as the place I used to live. A couple of blocks from here, over there, the roaches were so thick you couldn't see the wall. Here... It's not too bad. Not too bad, I replied. It's terrible. Doesn't Miss Dilworth's daughter come in here? Has she seen this? He shrugged, hunched over his plate, enjoying his supper. His shirt was stained with the spatterings of many meals. His baggy pants were unzipped. You know, I sure miss that dog. What's her name? Babe. He gummed his cornbread. Let me clean that cut on your forehead. I opened the hydrogen peroxide and daubed liberally with a cotton ball I'd brought from home. I slathered the wound with ointment, wondering why it was taking so long to heal. Are you taking those vitamins I got you? I asked. They're too big. I can't swallow them. So I tried chewing them. He squinched his face. Too bitter. I picked up the plate. I'll call the exterminators tomorrow. We'll get this place cleaned up, I said. No, let me tell you something. Them people are cheats. A couple of years back they came, and they sprayed a little here, and they sprayed a little there with the same stuff I've got over there. He motioned behind him to the stairwell. A five-gallon jug of insecticide sat on the stairs. I shuddered to think of him using it. No, I'm telling you, I'll just use that. I can spray that around. Don't call them bug people. They'll just take your money for nothing. He moved to brush another roach from his sleeve. And another thing, that woman, what's her name? The old lady's daughter. She's crazy about money. That's all she cares about. She's hungry for money. I'm telling you, that woman's crazy about money. She don't like nothing but new things. I went home. As I walked in the front door, I felt my young age relative to Everett. I saw a clean and neat home, tended daily. I crossed clean floors. I put on clean pajamas. I brushed my teeth and flossed. I climbed into the cool and crisp cotton sheets on my bed. I lied there, 
seeing Everett in his bed, covered with roaches. I imagined the natural world reclaiming him. What remains still will be taken over. Just watch Kudzu. Watch it for a week. What remains still will be taken over. Everett was living still, and he was not alone. In the morning, I called an extermination company. There was no way to handle this situation but by a massive offensive strike. I explained the situation to the woman on the phone. I added that it was urgent. Later that day, a representative came to my door. We went over to Everett's. Everett eyed me like I was a fool. I stood firm. While the bug man looked around, I went home and thought about the cleanup campaign that would need to follow. Few would be able to stomach the job. I called a stalwart friend with a constant need for cash flow and an ability to thrive on crisis in others. She agreed to the job. The bug man came back to my house. Hey, Miss Bailey, it's real bad, he said. It's criminal. No one should live like that, I replied. We'll get on it tomorrow. It'll take several follow-ups. Whatever it takes, I said. The crew arrived early the next day. They wore masks and bodysuits. I felt terrible about the use of so much poison, but I didn't see any option. The roaches had to go. Everett stayed at my house. In the afternoon, the bug man came by. I've been in this business 20 years, and this is the worst infestation I have ever seen. The box beams are full of bugs. Getting rid of them is going to be something. He explained the initial assault and the follow-up plans in detail. I listened, nodding. What about the landlord, he asked. Do they know about this? Well, I know she's been in there. I don't know. She knows about it. She has to. At this point, it doesn't matter. He can't live like that. Obviously, the landlady hasn't done anything. He handed me a bill. He got into his pickup and drove away, waving. I stood in the stoop and watched him go. I called my friend, Alice Fay Love. Time to mobilize, I said. Alice Fay arrived next morning. I made coffee. She drank several cups and smoked on the porch. She crossed the street and investigated the site. She made a list of cleaning supplies. Mop, broom, rags, Lysol, bleach, shop vac, respiration mask. She needed a good dose of courage. She cleaned for a solid week. She rose to the occasion. She flirted with the old man. He liked her company. She bought cheeseburgers and fries for the both of them. She ripped out the drapes. She hauled out the rug. She mopped the floors and washed the walls. She scrubbed the kitchen and everything in it. Bags and bags of garbage and debris emerged. Alice Faye strategized. She rearranged. She transformed a living hell into a home that an old man could manage. In the process, the landlady came by. Alice Fay gave her the straight and narrow. 
The house was full of her mother's things, and they had to be sorted. There was an entire life of stuff. Clothes, jewelry, dishes, furniture, glassware, photographs. In no-nonsense terms, Alice Fay presented the woman with her job. Deal with it, she said. Now, this woman, Miss Dilworth's daughter, was a person who liked new things, as Everett said. On her own, she had no sense of the valuable pieces in her mother's home. Alice Fay pointed them out to her. Alice Fay even gave her the $200 found under the old Oriental rug, after Everett said it wasn't his. When the woman came to my house later that first day, she was dog-faced. She said she sure appreciated what I was doing for Everett. I told her that the extermination alone was costing me $350. On top of that was the cleaning cost. She said she wanted to help, but she only had $50 she could contribute. I took the 50 and thanked her, saying I could not let an old man or anyone live in a situation like that. She agreed and said she'd give me some more money when she had it. She carried $150 cash in her pocket. We both knew it. She left. Everett's house was poisoned but clean. He resettled into it. Now, we all noticed that he was lonely without a companion. Jesse sent his dog, Henry Dog, to live with Everett for a while. Everett liked Henry's company, but Henry wanted to be with Jesse. He accepted Everett's attention patiently while looking out the window across the street at Edward, me, and sometimes Jesse. Henry's sister, Jewel, and his nephew, Hambone, lived at my house across the street. And oftentimes, when we were on the porch, I could see Henry in the window at Everett's place, watching. No matter how many of Everett's cookies and crackers Henry enjoyed, Henry knew that he was Jesse's dog, and he waited for the day when he would be reunited with his master. After a while, Everett himself said that Henry spent the whole day looking across the street, waiting for Jesse. Jesse took him back. Henry was glad. I had the idea of going to the Humane Society to get a new dog for Everett, so we went. After looking at the animals, Everett chose a young blonde female who looked like she had some lab in her. We took her home. Everett called her Babe. It was one of the biggest mistakes of judgment of the many I've made in my life. Days later, Jesse went over to Everett's to find him complaining about his legs and feet. As he told Jesse, he fell, and while he was down, the dog nipped at his feet and lower legs. He flailed his arms at her to stop her, but she did not stop. She continued. She bit him over and over. Sensing his weakness, the dog chewed him raw. His legs and feet were covered with tiny puncture wounds. I took the dog back to the Humane Society, explaining the situation. We tended Everett's legs and feet. I felt terrible. I should have foreseen this, but I didn't. So, Everett came to live by himself without a dog. 
ever came to my house often. We'd sit on the porch and talk. He liked gumming potato chips while enjoying a cold beer. I asked him lots of questions. What about your father? I asked. Who is he? Well, said Everett, I never asked. I figured he must be a criminal or some kind of no good, because she, his mother, never mentioned him. So I didn't ask. What about your mother? I asked. What happened to her? Well, said Everett, I saw her sometimes. She wanted to buy a little piece of property outside the city in New Jersey, but I told her not to do it. Boy, that piece would be worth something now. And then, after a while, she died. What about other relatives? I asked. Aunts, uncles, cousins? Well, said Everett, I don't know of any. Don't think there are any. Well, what was it like living on farms? I asked. It must have been a peaceful life. Well, said Everett, it wasn't too bad. We had barn cats. They'd scamper around. When I'd start milking, they'd come up and mew, mew, mew. Everett used his special kitty mewing voice at this part. I'd call to them. I'd squirt milk right at their mouth. He laughed happily at this part. Little cats would lap at that milk and run away to sit and clean and lick up all that milk. I asked him to tell the story of the cats over and over. He used his hands to show how he directed the teat towards the cat. He made the motions of the cat cleaning and licking the milk from its face. I loved his mewing, a high-pitched, insistent sounding of the greedy cat. It was the only story he told with such detail. In his telling was a softness, a tender offering of memory. When he laughed in the telling of the story, his lips curved up almost to his ears and his sparkling blue eyes disappeared. He'd laugh and make the mewing sound again after the story was over, like a punchline repeated for effect. We'd sit into the darkness of summer nights. After a while, Everett would get up and find his cane. Well... I guess I better get on over to the house, he said. Here, I'll go with you, I said. I can make it. I know you can, but I'd like the exercise, I said. And so we went, the old man and me. If Jesse was there, he'd come with us, and sometimes Edward came too. Slowly... Slowly we crossed from my place to his. When we got to his door, he reached deep into the pocket of his droopy breeches with stiff, long fingers. Slowly he brought forth the key, and he'd carefully and exactly put the key into the lock. Each motion was a lifetime, a full circle.
Not Too Bad was written, narrated, and produced by Anne Markham Bailey. To learn more about Anne, please go to www.annemarkhambailey.com. Audio design for this episode by Wade Collier. Wade is a writer, illustrator, and developer currently living in Brooklyn. If you're looking for writing journals and interesting custom print, consider Green Bucket Press. We support and promote authentic voice through our products and programs. Contact us at info at greenbucketpress.com. Go to our website, www.greenbucketpress.com. Tune in two weeks from now to hear the second and final part of Not Too Bad. You can rate us on iTunes and share the word about present tense on social media. For more information on this episode, go to greenbucketpress.com backslash present tense podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast.